This podcast may contain adult themes and triggering topics. Please be kind to yourself if you get triggered by what we discuss. Also, this isn't a substitute for therapy or counseling. Please listen to the appendix at the end for some of our recommendations for resources that will help you find a qualified mental health care provider. Now, we take you to a time in the near future where emotional abuse has been appropriately deemed a crime and the survivors find a home to reclaim their lives and freedom. This is Haven, and these are the stories of the Reclaimers. Julia, you're you're not going to try and pull one over on us, are you? Really? No. I refuse to believe that specific line of uh, psychotic optimism. Well, come on yourself, Ben. I've seen it firsthand, and the research that backs it up is really impressive. Whoa, 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 Julia. You're saying that survivors don't need the support of a therapist that a therapist can provide? No, not at all. I'm I'm saying that the therapist isn't there to determine the timeline for healing. Survivors are motivated by their own pain. And you're speaking from personal experience? Absolutely. In other words, anecdotal evidence. Whether you like it or not, her lived experience is relevant. Julia, care to share your personal experience? Yeah, um, I was in therapy before the Reformation, and I had several therapists who told me they couldn't help me until I left my abuser, but I had no resources to leave him. He had taken all my money, isolated me from my friends and family, and even put trackers on all of my devices. I had no resources to leave, no resources, no access to support, and no hope. Hmm. I'd never considered that, Julia. That sounds like a terrible situation to be in. It, it really is. And, and I am genuinely sorry that that happened. But that's not what we're arguing here. What we're doing is we're talking. Ben's made it about timeline. Who should be in charge of how someone heals from coercive control and gaslighting? My therapists all had a timeline they wanted me to obey. I'm not saying they didn't want to help. They just didn't understand the enormous pressurized double bind this type of abuse put someone in. Luckily, the reformation was finalized during my abuser's most deadly attack. I mean, I was in critical care on life support when it was all passed. And when I started at the Haven... Julia, you you sound like an ad for the Haven. Meg, come on. Ben, you know, interrupting tactics like that do not fly here. You'll get your turn. Julia, go on. Well, my time at the Haven was filled with support, resources, and assurance. I knew what I needed to do to heal, and I could go at my pace. I've seen the difference between traditional methods for dealing with this type of abuse and the new researched and proven methods given to survivors at the Reclamation Center. It was my choice how to heal, and that's the very definition of consent. It's antithetical to coercive control. No one tried to control me, tell me what to do at the Haven. That was a stark contrast to my 14-year marriage. Great. Truly. That's just fabulous. It, it really is. I am so glad that you found healing. But tell me something. How many times did you go back to your abuser? 
Ben, I'm not sure I'm comfortable with asking Julia that. It's fine, Meg, it's fine. He's okay. I went back to my abuser a total of five times. And that's that's below the average, isn't it? Yeah, it actually is. The average is roughly eight to ten times for the length of my marriage, which was 14 years. And that number is just for marriages, or all relationships that involve manipulated attachment? Well, it doesn't matter the context of the relationship. Disordered personalities are skilled at conditioning their victims to return, no matter how much the victim wants out. And you mentioned that you were in the ER. Why did you go back after that? Ben, I think it's a really good question, and I confess, it took me a long time to acknowledge this. I was deceived. He manipulated me to believe that I provoked him, that I was the abuser, that if I was a better partner to him, if I'd done more to care for his needs, if I was just kinder to him, that we could finally get the relationship back to how it was in the beginning. And how was it in the beginning? It was really good. I mean, I honestly thought he was my soulmate. And did it ever get back to that? No. He was lying, tricking me, deceiving me. As I understand it, the deception is part of the abuse, right? Yes, it's a huge part. I mean, if he'd told me the truth of who he was in the beginning, there's no way in hell I would have ever chosen to stay with him. Okay. So... He tricked you. Well, at first, yes. Uh, But the conditioning he used had me tricking myself by the end. And then he trapped you? Yeah, by isolating me from all my friends, family, and resources. And then therapists told you that you had to get out before they'd even help you, forcing you to stay. You got it. Your point, Ben. I don't need to make my point. She's making it for me. She was held mentally hostage by the toxic conditioning and so not only couldn't be saved but wouldn't allow herself to be saved and and instead of romanticizing consent we need to be focused on saving those who won't even admit they need saving no more victims remember no more victims fair point if Julia couldn't get out because she couldn't separate from her abuser well I wasn't capable I was manipulated into a chemically altered state known as trauma bonding. Right! Trauma bonding! Trauma bonding prevents her from even seeing the abuse to begin with. Look, it's simple. If she can't even admit it to herself that she's being abused, how can she get her abuser prosecuted or even convicted? It's another fair point, Julia. Yes, they are fair points. Truly, I concede that we may save a few people if we did it Ben's way. But? It doesn't work. When you pull a victim out of this type of abuse before they're ready, they struggle with no contact so much that their recovery time is nearly tripled. Many victims who are forced to leave their abuser before they're able to do the work to leave, those victims go back even after they've had years apart from their abuser. Years they spent in therapy, even. Knowing you, I bet there's some data to back that up. 
Well, of course. Senator Alcorn's team conducted research on over 5,000 test cases. Use the search term Alcorn Consent Research on your VidCon to get all the abstracts and graphs. Well prepared. I like it. And to Ben's earlier point, we can't take chances on singular anecdotal evidence when it comes to survivors. And while I appreciate the validation of my lived experience, it was far from anecdotal. I got what I needed because of the excellent foundation of research used at the Haven. Okay. Okay. Was that a ploy to get me to cough up some of my own evidence? You have evidence? Meg, please. We lawyers know how to make a case. I sent it to your graphics team at the top of the show. Uh, let's go ahead and bring that on screen. There. Perfect. As you can see, this is the total number of cases prosecuted in the new justice system since its inception. Let's isolate the number of emotional abuse cases. That's a pretty big number. And there's my evidence. Okay, Ben. I've given you a lot of latitude with this one. <laughs> you have. And in this case, I don't need latitude. That number there, that's over 8,000 victims in D.C. alone since the reform was ratified. Every single one of those cases could have been prevented entirely if an empath had been able to read past this ridiculous line of consent. If an empath had been able to tell us about any predatory motivations to begin with, why aren't we reading people's intentions ahead of any criminal act? Why are we using heightened receptors as therapists when we could be using them as... Brute force? Security. Or... Well, yes. If that's what it takes. 8,000 cases. Even one is way too many. Ben, seriously, this is your argument? No. No, this is a preamble to the argument. See? Prior to the justice reform, there was a report compiled on the use of heightened empathy in law enforcement. And what they found was... Oh, uh, graphics team, want to throw that up there for me? What do these numbers represent? I am so glad you asked that, Meg. See that big old red line right there at the top? That's the number of convictions of criminals when... Heightened empaths used their gift during interrogations to detect instances of predatory and criminal behavior. Well, that's a pretty high number. Right? And that number at the bottom to the left there? That's the number of convictions of guilty criminals when heightened empaths weren't involved. So, what are you trying to say, Ben? Yeah. We can live in Julia's fancy, completely healed world where survivors are given support just fine. But we can also live in the world where there are no more victims. We can also live in the world where the touchy-feely empaths are required to use their gifts to protect from the trauma rather than counsel with the victims after the trauma has endangered a victim's emotional and physical well-being. Why isn't anyone else as done with this predatory behavior as I am? No more victims. No more! No more victims. I'll give you that, Ben. The difference is compelling, to say the least. Well, we're out of time, so we're going to take a short break. But when we return, we'll be talking with some of the staffers from the Senate Reforms Committee. Chief
Hey, it's Percy and Feeney here. What you've just heard is a work of fiction, but we know that many listeners are living in a world of pain that isn't fictional at all. At the end of every episode, we're going to include an appendix of sorts, some things we hope will serve those who live with a reality of fear and pain every day. First, we want to let you know about our website, www.empowering.tools, where we keep an ongoing list of books, websites, hotlines, and many other resources for victims and survivors of toxic relationships. Second, we'd love to hear from you. If you'd like to share your story with us or let us know how the episode impacted you, we'd love for you to reach out. These are deeply emotional things and we want to give you a chance to share. We're a small team, so an in-depth response isn't always possible, but we do read every message we receive. Third, if you're in crisis or you need to find an immediate way out, we recommend joinonelove.org. Simply text LOVE IS to 22522 STAR to get an immediate response from a peer advocate or call 800 799 7233 for the National Domestic Abuse Hotline. If your abuser is a parent or a non romantic relationship, there are other resources we've listed on the website that are just for you. A reminder. Emotional violence is still violence. You don't need to have bruises on your body to deserve help. And it's okay to feel what you're feeling when you call. Fourth, be safe. For some, getting out will take planning and time. If you know you need help, do what you need in order to safely get away. Lastly, we know how difficult it can be to believe there's hope on the other side of a toxic relationship. Many on our team know the devastatingly difficult steps it takes to get away from an abusive predator. But there is hope. You don't have to do it alone. If you don't have supportive family or friends, you can still find support at the hotlines we mentioned earlier or at a local hospital or shelter. Thousands of survivors have made it out. Getting out and reclaiming your freedom can be your story. We believe in you. We believe in your future. And And we we believe believe in in your your right right to to that that freedom. freedom.